there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. December 14th, 1944. Palawan Province, the Philippines. A beautiful island of crystal clear blue water, idyllic white sand beaches, and majestic rock formations that would, years later, turn this spot into a vacation destination. On this day in 1944, however, it was anything but idyllic. It was the location of Japanese prison camp 10A, where 150 American prisoners of war would be forced into a horrifying death trap. The American prisoners were herded into a series of wood shelters built over trenches five feet deep and four feet wide. They waited, packed shoulder to shoulder, until the air raid passed. Their Japanese captors stood above them, rifles at the ready to punish anyone who stepped out of line. 23-year-old U.S. Marine Glenn McDowell stood at the far end of his shelter on lookout duty. He peeked out over the top of the trench keeping an eye on both the men in the two other trenches and their Japanese captors. McDole was hopeful. They had heard rumors that the tide of the war had turned and that it was only a matter of time before the American army would arrive and liberate them from the clutches of the Japanese. McDole scanned the sky for American bombers or fighter jets. They had to be ready to protect themselves in the event of a bombing, but he saw none. The sky was clear and the camp was quiet. What he did see were the Japanese guards preparing for something. Some held barrels of gasoline. Others stood with machine guns at the ready. The air raid siren had been a fake. The American army was not coming to rescue them. Something far worse was about to happen. McDowell's stomach dropped as he watched the Japanese captors approach the furthest shelter carrying barrels of gasoline. The guards began pouring gas on the wood shelters. Before McDowell could really process what he was seeing, they lit the shelters on fire. 
Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're discussing Glenn McDowell, an American Marine in World War II who spent over two years as a prisoner of the Japanese Imperial Army. We'll examine the horrifying conditions the prisoners found themselves facing and the ways they managed to stay alive by the skin of their teeth. Even by the bloody standards of World War II, the deadliest conflict in human history, the toll of being a prisoner of war in the Pacific was staggeringly high. 40% of all Allied soldiers held captive by the Japanese perished. In war, the difference between those who live and those who die is often simply luck. Survival is sometimes just about being in the right place at the right time. It's also about endurance, about being able to withstand inhumane conditions longer than seems possible. It's about doing whatever it takes to stay alive. It was the summer of 1940. Glenn McDowell, known as Mac to his friends, was looking for a job. He had recently discovered he wouldn't be able to do the one thing he loved, play high school basketball. He would turn 20 years old before the school year was over, and students that age weren't allowed to play high school sports. Rather than stay in school but not play, McDole dropped out. After getting to know a local highway patrolman, he planned to join the Iowa Highway Patrol but discovered that he couldn't yet because the age minimum was 20. He was too old to play basketball and too young to join the highway patrol. McDowell asked the patrolman if he had any advice. The patrolman suggested the U.S. Marine Corps. One morning, late in the summer of 1940, McDowell walked into the federal building in Des Moines and enlisted in the Marines. After basic training, Private First Class McDowell was shipped off to the Philippines, where he was stationed at the U.S. Navy Yard at Cavite. When he wasn't on guard duty, he spent most of his time training and hanging out with his friend Rufus Smith, known as Smitty. It was peacetime, and all was quiet. At least until December 8, 1941. McDowell was sleeping in the barracks when he was awoken by the piercing sounds and flashing lights of a call to arms. The Marines dressed and got into formation. Their commanding officer, Colonel Adams, lined the men up and soberly told them the news. Japanese forces had attacked Pearl Harbor. Peacetime was over. The United States was now at war in the Pacific, and McDowell was stationed right in the heart of the new battleground. McDowell and Smitty rushed to their posts. Neither of them could believe what was happening, but both were ready to fight. 
The Japanese Imperial Army invaded the Philippines. The American forces were left reeling, retreating to the Bataan Peninsula when the Japanese captured Manila. McDowell's battalion was ordered to the island of Corregidor, two miles off the coast of Bataan. The fortified island would be America's last stronghold in the Philippines. McDowell was assigned to Fort Hughes, located on a tiny island just south of Corregidor, where he spent 24 hours a day manning a machine gun and loading massive anti-aircraft guns. Over the course of the next few months, Japanese bombers battered the island day after day, hour after hour. Casualties mounted. McDowell slowly began to realize that this war would not be a quick one. Before dawn, on March 11, 1942, McDowell spotted two boats leaving Bataan, passing by Fort Hughes and his machine gun turret. He was told to ignore them. They were friendly vessels. General MacArthur and his family were on board, abandoning Bataan and the Philippines. Bataan fell less than a month later. Over 70,000 Allied soldiers, Filipino and American, were captured by the Japanese and marched back towards San Fernando on what would become known as the Bataan Death March. Still on Fort Hughes, McDowell and the other soldiers continued the fight despite the fact that the writing was on the wall. Morale plummeted, with many feeling bitter and abandoned by the U.S. government. But McDowell refused to give up hope. He was sure that reinforcements would arrive before it was too late. But they couldn't hold on for much longer. With casualties stretching into the hundreds, it was just a matter of time before Corregidor fell to the Japanese. On May 6th, after Japanese forces had successfully gained a foothold on the island, the Americans unconditionally surrendered. The news was devastating to the Allied soldiers. At Fort Hughes, McDowell began to weep when he heard of the surrender. He witnessed two soldiers who, refusing to be taken prisoner, shot themselves instead. In a state of shock, McDowell and the rest of the surviving men followed their last orders and destroyed as many weapons as they could. Then they sat and waited, staring across the charred and battered landscape of the tiny island they had fought to defend for months. Around midday, the Japanese soldiers arrived on motorboats and approached with guns drawn. McDowell and the others stood silently with their hands on their heads as the enemy soldiers marched into the fort. Their lives as prisoners of war had begun. When McDowell surrendered to the Japanese on Corregidor on May 6, 1942, he knew that he would need to fight with every ounce of strength he had to survive. He was immediately put to work cleaning up the Corregidor Island base. He and the other soldiers were charged with gathering and disposing of the remains of the dead. The bodies of the Japanese soldiers were burned and their ashes sent back to Japan. The fallen Filipino and American soldiers were buried in unmarked graves without a funeral. McDowell and his fellow prisoners of war were not even allowed to remove the dog tags. 
The POWs were marched towards San Fernando, Manila. Any valuables were taken from them. Wristwatches, necklaces. If a prisoner had any gold teeth, the Japanese soldiers would knock them out with the butt of their rifles and confiscate them. McDowell had one item of value he desperately didn't want to lose, his high school class ring. When he approached the Japanese soldiers, he hid it in his mouth, and they miraculously didn't check there. When they arrived in the city, the Allied soldiers were marched through the streets in an attempt to humiliate the defeated army. When the people cheered them instead, the Japanese soldiers became enraged. Several locals attempted to reunite with their captured loved ones, only to be met with violence from the conquering soldiers. McDowell and the others could do nothing but watch as a Japanese soldier ripped a baby from the arms of its mother, threw it in the air, and caught it with his bayonet. McDowell felt paralyzed, sick with shock and horror. He found himself overcome with hatred for his captors, for what they had done and for what he knew they would do to him. His determination to survive hardened. He was not going to let them get the best of him. The march continued. The prisoners were loaded onto trains and sent to Cabanatuan, a prison camp more than 70 miles north of Manila. They were packed in so tightly that no light entered the train car, and they rode to their destination in darkness. At one point in the journey, one of the Japanese soldiers began harassing McDowell's group. McDowell did his best to ignore him, hoping not to provoke him further. It didn't work. Without warning or explanation, the soldier stabbed McDowell in the back with his bayonet. The blade entered just under his ribcage and sent him screaming and tumbling to the ground. Enraged by the randomness of the attack, McDowell tried to push himself to his feet to fight back then and there. But Smitty held him back, warning him that to do so would mean death. McDowell knew he was right. He remembered what he'd promised to himself. He wasn't going to let his captors get the best of them. From the train, the prisoners were marched to the Cabanatuan prison camp. The camp was located in the middle of a huge stretch of flat land. McDowell stared at his terrible new home as he marched mile after mile. For the first time since the onset of the war, he began to feel a sense of helplessness and foreboding. He had a sickening feeling that he might be looking at the place of his own death. To McDowell, the gates of the camp resembled the entrance to hell. He looked out at the cramped bamboo huts surrounded by guard towers and barbed wire fencing. McDowell knew that there was no possible escape from this camp. He would simply have to survive. Up next, McDowell endures torture at the hands of his captors. Now, back to the story. In May 1942, Private First Class Glenn McDowell was serving with the United States Marine Corps in the Philippines. After the war in the Pacific began, McDowell fought against the Japanese invasion until the battle was lost and he was taken prisoner. Japanese prisoners of war faced many dangers. Beyond the guns and bayonets of their captors, there were diseases like malaria and dysentery, 
that ran rampant in the filthy prison camps. Many soldiers despaired and took their own lives. The Allied soldiers were aware of the hardships they would face as they entered Cabanatuan prison, but they were still unprepared for how spartan and brutal the camp was. There were no beds. The prisoners had to sleep on the bare bamboo floor with no protection from the insects and rats that infested both the huts and their food supply. The intention wasn't just to physically stress the prisoners, it was to mentally break them too. Every single morning, as he trudged to his work assignment, McDowell witnessed the bodies of Allied soldiers being wheeled off to be disposed of. Sometimes as many as 15 soldiers were buried in a single day. At Cabanatuan, living through the day was never guaranteed, and escape was impossible. McDowell decided that his best chance to survive was to be sent out of the camp on a work party. He volunteered to join a group being sent to a place called Palawan Island, where they were promised better conditions and better food. McDole, Smitty, and the other volunteers were packed inside the hold of an old merchant ship that the Japanese used for prisoner transport. The Americans would come to know these crafts as hell ships. The men and cargo were so densely packed together that it was difficult to breathe, let alone sit down. Death by suffocation was a very real danger. Some prisoners were driven mad by the claustrophobia. They attacked one another or tried to escape by climbing the ladder to the upper deck, only to be shot by the guards. McDowell and Smitty were among the lucky ones. Their voyage only lasted a matter of days. Later in the war, other prisoners would spend months in those horrifying conditions as they were shipped to Japan. On August 12, 1942, McDowell and Smitty looked through the windows of the hell ship to see themselves approaching what looked like paradise on Earth. White sand beaches, perfectly blue water, and picturesque bluffs. They had reached Palawan Island. They were overjoyed to have reached their destination, but deep down they knew that the island would be anything but paradise. Palawan is the fifth largest of the Philippine Islands, roughly 270 miles long and ranges from 15 to 30 miles across. By the time McDowell was brought to its capital city of Puerto Princesa, the island was mostly deserted. The locals had fled the Japanese and found hiding spots in the mountains. There was no prison camp on Palawan, so McDowell and his group were first put to work turning an abandoned barracks into a camp, which would be christened Prison Camp 10A by their captors. The prisoners built their own prison, latrines, barbed wire fences, and shelters. There were some minor improvements over the deathly conditions at Cabanatuan. At the very least, the barracks had flimsy mosquito nets, which provided some small protection from malaria. But the promise of better food proved to be a lie. After their prison camp was completed, the commander, Captain Kishimoto, announced that their next task would be constructing roads around the camp. But when they were marched out to the worksite, 
the soldiers realized the true nature of the project. They would be building an airfield for the Imperial Japanese Army Air Service. Their work would directly contribute to the Japanese war effort against the United States. As far as McDole and his companions knew, this might even lead to an invasion of America. Despite being away from the horrific conditions at Cabana Tuan, life on Palawan remained a life-and-death struggle for the Allied prisoners of war. Every single day, another prisoner was either badly beaten or summarily executed by the Japanese guards. Diseases and infection were a constant threat. On St. Patrick's Day, 1943, McDole woke with a cramp in his side. But there were no sick days on Palawan. In addition to risking the wrath of the guards, men who didn't work had their already severely limited rations cut. McDole forced himself up and threw his morning routine, hiding his pained expression as the feeling in his side got worse and worse. He marched with his work group to the airstrip, walking slower than usual, but just barely managing to keep pace. It was a hot and humid day at the airstrip, and McDole tried to power through the pain. While he dug, the pain intensified and surged through his abdomen. It hurt as badly as being stabbed with the bayonet. Finally, McDole collapsed. A Japanese guard threatened to beat him if he didn't return to work, but the pain had become so intense that he was no longer able to move. The camp's doctor, American Lieutenant Carl Mango interceded and convinced the guard to let him examine McDole. He immediately recognized the symptoms. McDole's appendix was about to burst. The Japanese commander had tools for an emergency appendectomy, but there was no anesthesia available at the camp, nor anything to knock McDole out. Their only shot was another prison across the bay. McDole's friends watched as he was loaded into a truck and rushed away. They waved and said their goodbyes. There was a good chance this was the last time they'd see him. When McDole and Lieutenant Mango reached the other prison, Lieutenant Mango desperately searched the medical room but came up empty. There was no anesthetic there either, nor anything to fight infection. Lieutenant Mango didn't parse words. He told McDole that if they didn't operate then and there, he would die. McDole gritted his teeth and said, if I'm gonna die from it, let's die trying. McDole laid down on the prison's rundown operating table while five guards held down his arms and legs as best they could. McDole felt the doctor begin his work, slicing his abdomen open with a scalpel. McDole screamed, in more pain than he'd ever felt in his life. His screams turned to laughter as the pain reached such heights that he became loopy. The guards struggled to hold him down. Finally, after a few minutes, McDole passed out from the pain. A few hours later, Lieutenant Mango had successfully removed McDole's appendix and sewed him up the best he could. It wasn't good enough. Three days later, as a tropical storm battered Palawan, McDole's sutures burst. 
In agony, splayed out on the hard bamboo floor of the barracks, McDole held his insides together with his hands as Smitty ran to get the doctor. The infection worsened. McDole's mood darkened as he started to become convinced that he was dying. Despite the doctor's orders not to drink anything, McDole had Smitty bring him some water. He wasn't going to die thirsty. This was rewarded with more fluid leaking from his wound. There was nothing to do but sit and wait for the infection to either pass or kill him. He thought of his home in Iowa, of his cramped house where he lived with his parents and five siblings. His parents had been scared by his decision to join the Marines, and he couldn't even imagine what they were thinking now, having heard nothing of his whereabouts for almost a year. He hoped they knew, at least, that he was still alive, that he would fight to the end. Perhaps it was this desire to fight that kept him going. While all signs seemed to point to his body giving out, the miraculous happened. The infection cleared. Both McDole and the doctor were shocked. Lieutenant Mango scavenged buttons from an old shirt and used them to sew up the wound, 12 in total down McDole's side. Miraculously, it held. The wound healed. And so, it was back to work for McDole. Survival as a prisoner of war wasn't just about physical endurance. It was also about observation, about recognizing which rules could be bent and which guards to avoid. Some guards were more lenient than others. One guard, who McDole nicknamed Smiley, was a genial man who let the prisoners take frequent breaks while on work duty and never enforced his orders with a club or bayonet. He'd even allow prisoners to scavenge for food while working, allowing them to supplement their meager rice diet with the occasional coconut or banana. Other guards were not nearly as generous. On the flip side of Smiley was Taichi Deguchi, acting commander of the feared Kempeitai, the military police force on Palawan. Deguchi seemed to enjoy beating and killing prisoners for tiny infractions or for no infractions at all. After a failed escape attempt, Deguchi made an example of the two offending prisoners. They were tied to posts, not allowed food or water, and brutally tortured for days on end. After a week, Deguchi marched them to a coconut grove outside the gates and had them executed. McDole knew to be extra careful around Deguchi, or he might face the same fate. Survival also meant knowing what was worth dying for and what wasn't. One day, a Japanese guard finally spotted McDole's high school class ring and threatened to chop off his finger if he didn't surrender it. McDole fought against every instinct to refuse and fight back. It simply wasn't worth it. He suppressed his rage, handed over the class ring, and watched as the guard slipped it on his own finger and walked away. He would never get the ring back, but he kept his life. Other prisoners made numerous escape attempts during their stay at Palawan, but McDole never participated. The consequences were too severe. If any member of their 10-man work squads were to attempt an escape, all of them would be executed. 
McDole, determined to survive, wouldn't allow any talk of escape within his work group. He even threatened to kill three prisoners he had heard were planning a breakout. Thanks to his focus and determination, McDole survived on Palawan for over two years. But no amount of endurance or strength of will could protect him from what was coming next. December 14, 1944, started out as a normal day on Palawan Island. McDole and his work party had spent hours working on the airstrip, as they had every day for over a year. They could tell that the Japanese guards were anxious, anticipating something. McDole hoped that perhaps the American army was getting close. Just after noon, the guards marched the prisoners back to the camp. Once they were inside the gates, they heard the sound of an air raid siren. As they had many times before, the men descended into the bomb shelters, which were little more than a series of trenches covered in wood planks and dirt. After 10 minutes, they heard the all clear. Following protocol, the prisoners ascended the ladders and climbed out. But something was wrong. The guards ordered them back into the shelters, shouting, the Americans are coming. The air raid siren began to blare again. As they headed back into the trenches, McDole whispered to Smitty that if the Americans were indeed coming, they might need to use their backup plan. McDole and Smitty had dug these trenches themselves and knew they would offer little real protection from an actual bombing run. So they built themselves an escape hatch. Though the Japanese guards had strict orders as to the size and construction of the shelters, McDole had some freedom in choosing the location and he chose to build them as close as he could to the sheer cliffside drop-off that ran along one edge of the camp. McDole and Smitty had dug the beginnings of a tunnel that would open up to the cliffside and allow them to climb down to the beach below. While McDole still considered any escape attempt to be too risky, the tunnels would at least allow them to avoid getting blown up if the camp was bombed. McDole continued keeping watch, searching for any signs of Allied jets flying overhead. If bombs started to fall, he was responsible for warning the other men in the trench. But the planes never came. The prisoners waited in the trenches, growing impatient as the heat in the shelter became unbearable. With each moment that passed in silence, McDole began to suspect that this was not a simple air raid. There was something far more sinister going on. McDole began to think back on the rumors he had heard that the Japanese had orders to kill all of their POWs rather than let them be liberated. He had written off these rumors as paranoia, but as he stood in the shelter, he wondered if they could be true. Maybe they were not about to be freed. Maybe they were all about to be killed. Smitty told McDole to look over the edge of the shelter to see what was going on. McDole peeked his head out, and he was shocked by what he saw. The Japanese soldiers were pouring gasoline onto another shelter and tossing lit torches on top. 
Smitty craned his neck to look over the top of the trench and saw the shelter burning. As news spread among the men in the trench, they began to panic. McDole and Smitty tried their best to stay calm. They had a way out. Smitty rushed to the hidden spot on the other end of the long trench, pulled the rock away, and began desperately digging through the tunnel to the cliffside. McDole hung back at the front corner of the trench to keep watch. Frozen in fear and helplessness, McDole watched his fellow soldiers in the burning trench make desperate runs for safety, only to be shot down by the guards. He knew that chances were he would be next, and there was very little he could do to stop it. He looked down at the other end of the trench, where Smitty and the other soldiers were digging out the escape tunnel. He prayed they would be able to finish quickly. It was only a matter of time before they, too, faced the fire. Coming up, McDole makes a break for freedom. Now, back to the story. Glenn McDole had been beaten, stabbed, and nearly killed during his years as a prisoner of war in the Philippines. On December 14, 1944, he stood in a bomb shelter on Palawan Island and watched as the Japanese guards set fire to his fellow prisoners. He had only a few minutes to escape before it was his turn. McDole kept watch at the front of the trench as Smitty and the other prisoners dug out the half-completed tunnel. One by one, the prisoners in the other trenches took their chances with the guards, only to be stabbed or shot the moment they emerged from the shelter. A few Americans did manage to climb out of the trenches and get the upper hand. One even managed to kill a guard, but he was shot a moment later. The American officers in the camp were treated no differently. Their foxhole was lit on fire, and when they tried to escape, they too were gunned down. The doctor, Lieutenant Carl Mango, ascended the ladder. He held his hands up and pleaded for the guards to have mercy. They responded by dumping gasoline on his head and watching as he burned alive. The appendectomy scar on McDole's side throbbed as he watched the man who saved his life die in horrible agony. He felt sick to his stomach. Shelter A was on fire and the guards had begun dousing Shelter B with gasoline, too. Standing at the front of Shelter C, McDole realized his group was last in line. They had a few minutes, but no longer, to finish digging the tunnel before the guards reached them. As they dug, they regularly glanced back to see men from the other shelters being gunned down as they tried to escape. Another group of prisoners made a run at the barbed wire fence. They desperately crawled through the sharp metal while the barbs ripped their flesh apart. McDole felt a surge of elation and hope as he saw nearly a dozen men make it through the barbed wire. Escape was possible. The guards finally reached McDole's shelter and began pouring buckets of gas inside, torch at the ready. The fire was moments away. Then, daylight burst through the dirt wall as Smitty and the other prisoners broke through to the other side. One by one, the men crawled through the opening 
and threw themselves down the 60-foot incline. The guards threw a torch inside, and the trench went up in flames. McDole had less than 10 seconds to escape before he would meet the same fate as the men in the other shelters. The flames rushed towards him in an instant. As McDole raced to the tunnel, his shoes caught fire, then his pants, then his shirt. He rushed to strip them off as he made his way to the tunnel. McDole saw one last prisoner by the exit who hadn't yet jumped. He was crouched against the shelter wall, too terrified to make the plunge. McDole grabbed the man and pushed him through the tunnel. Burned and naked, McDole took a deep breath before throwing himself out. He tumbled down the hill over sharp rocks before finally landing on the hot coral of the beach. Between 30 and 40 POWs made it out of the trench and down the cliff. But they were not out of the woods yet, not by a long shot. Sharpshooters from the camp began firing down at them. Several men jumped into the bay and were shot as they tried to swim away. On the beach, McDole briefly reunited with his friend Smitty. Their embrace was interrupted by the sound of machine gun fire spraying right by their feet. A burst of pain exploded in McDole's right leg. For a moment, he thought he had been shot. But looking down, he realized that it was actually a piece of sharp coral sent flying by the impact of a bullet. Smitty sprinted off toward the jungle, chased by bullets. McDole took one step after him and realized that running wouldn't be an option with his wounded leg. His only chance was to hide. There were not many places to hide on the exposed coral beach, and even fewer that the guards wouldn't think to check. McDole looked around desperately until he finally spotted something. It was the trash dump, a pit filled with years of Prison Camp 10A's garbage. Fighting the urge to gag, McDole dove into the pit and dug as deep as he could, burying himself in the waste and trying to block out the overpoweringly nauseating stench. Covered in maggots, worms, and rotten meat, McDole forced himself to lay silently, trying not to think about the risk of infecting his wounded leg. The Japanese guards searched the beach. McDole listened to the sounds of his fellow POWs being discovered and gunned down. It was too late to find another hiding spot, too late to make a run for it. He couldn't move a single muscle. If he twitched or made a sound, he would die. As McDole laid in the garbage pit, keeping his breath as quiet and slow as possible, other POWs began crawling in beside him. They were not as quiet. They whispered at him, what are we going to do? McDole snapped at them to stop talking. All they could do was remain hidden. One man, Corporal Evans, was not able to handle the hiding spot. The smell and the bugs were too much for him. He reached his breaking point. Evans stood up out of the trash pile, brazenly announcing himself to the Japanese guards nearby. He cursed them and screamed, go ahead and shoot me. The guards were all too happy to comply. Evans' dead body fell on top of McDole. 
The guards unknowingly stepped on him as they retrieved it. Evan's body was burned along with the rest. Then the guards kept patrolling, executing any remaining survivors. As night began to fall, the guards headed back to the camp. McDole wasn't sure if they were satisfied that all the prisoners had been killed or just taking a break to have dinner. Each prisoner hiding on the beach had to decide when to make a run for it. Too early or too late, and they could be spotted or killed. McDole heard the other prisoners hiding in the trash pile quietly emerge and continue their escape, but he couldn't bring himself to do the same. He stayed through the sleepless night, breathing in the noxious fumes. The next morning, as the sun rose over the bay, McDole decided it was time to make his move. He dug a hole in the layer of garbage above him, about the size of a football. As he looked out to see if the coast was clear, he was met with the cold stare of a Japanese soldier above him. With nowhere to run, no way to fight, McDole was out of options. So he did the one thing he could. He closed his eyes and prayed. Thanks for listening to Survival. In next week's episode, we'll follow Glenn McDole's daring escape from Palawan and its aftermath. For more information on McDole and the Palawan Massacre, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Last Man Out, Glenn McDole, U.S. Marine Corps, survivor of the Palawan Massacre in World War II by Bob Willibanks, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Survival and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Survival, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Survival on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Survival was written by Ryan Lee and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. 